From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about domestic terrorism, and our guest is Jim Piazza, who is a liberal arts professor of political science, a colleague of all of ours here at Penn State. And, uh, you know, this is kind of an interesting time to be talking about domestic terrorism. As we record this on March 3rd, we heard FBI Director Christopher Wray this week testify in Congress that the FBI has opened something like 2,000 domestic terrorism investigations since 2017. So, you know, and I know we've also been talking about it a lot on this show following the January 6th insurrection. So we thought it would be good to, you know, as we sometimes do, take a, a deeper dive, kind of an explainer into this topic. So it feels like this is an important topic right now, Jenna, because you get the sense that we are in the midst of a period of heightened political violence. And so I'm thinking not only of, of course, what happened on the Capitol on the 6th, but also the uh, armed protesters in the Michigan State House, the uh, plot that was uncovered to kidnap and perhaps execute the governor of Michigan, but also the repeated incidents of drivers driving into uh, mass protests, some of what went on in Seattle. And of course, uh, I was also thinking of the uh, sort of weird, scary uniform thugs that were at the uh, Black Lives Matters protests that nobody really knew exactly who they were. So I don't know, it just feels like a period where uh, maybe political violence is kind of increasing in this country. It is, I think, important for us to really focus on this matter of political violence and domestic terrorism. But I also think it's important for us to keep in mind that it's salient in the media, but it has almost always been salient for people who do the work on the ground. And of course, post 9-11 really shifted our attention, focus and priorities to international terrorism. But I was looking as like a weirdo on, on the FBI archives and I found this testimony from 2002 of this Dale Watson at that time who said, you know, it's really important that we focus on international terrorism. But between 1980 and 2000, the FBI had recorded hundreds of incidents of domestic terrorism in the United States. And at that time, you know, basically he was trying to say domestic terrorism is a problem for us. And it has been a problem in the United States, but we focused on and had made salient international terrorism, particularly since 9-11? Well, certainly the kinds of statements that Christopher Wray has been making this week, where he has talked explicitly about domestic terrorism as terrorism and as a much greater security threat to the United States right now than international terrorism. I don't really remember hearing it quite that way from the head of the FBI before, and certainly it's being received quite differently in Congress and the administration than it was previously. One of the things I think is important to keep in mind is intent, purpose, goals. And if your intent, purpose, and goals are to undermine democracy, are to undermine the will of the people, are to prevent the processes of transfer of power peacefully, then we have to talk about that, that the kind of underlying intention, strategy, premeditated effort to intimidate 
Americans, that has to be put front and center. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great point. And also speaks to why elevating the level of discussion about this investigation into it is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also perhaps why there's so much reluctance to do it. Uh, you know, I'm Absolutely. thinking both the reluctance to have some sort of commission that might yes. really get to, say, the bottom of the level of disorganization, as well as any connections that might exist between them and elected officials. I think this interview with Jim will give you a good overview maybe into some more of this history and what exactly domestic terrorism is and who and and how it has been thought about and dealt with to the extent that it has thus far. So let's uh, go to the interview with Jim Piazza. Jim Piazza, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We are going to talk today about domestic terrorism. It's a term that's been kind of thrown around a lot lately, particularly since the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. I thought it might be good just to start with a definition. People might have different understandings of of what that term even means based on how it's talked about. So you're the expert, Jim. How do you define domestic terrorism or, or how should folks think about it? Sure, that's a good place to start. Generally, terrorism experts and counterterrorism officials would define terrorism in the following way. Terrorism is a violent act, it has to be violent, that has a political motive or political objective. Typically, terrorism is sort of small scale. It's it's typically a low capacity type event. Typically, the perpetrator is a non-state actor. And this is a a pretty common component of the definition. So it would be political activist, political party, an individual. It's not a state actor. We have sort of different sort of terms and conceptions of when the state engages in political violence. Typically with terrorism, we expect that the violence is, is intended to influence a wider audience or wider political discussion than the immediate victim or target. So whereas Of course, the target of the attack is, of course, very affected by the attack. It's supposed to send a larger message and to influence the audience to be intimidated or to be provoked or so on and so forth. Typically, it's premeditated, which means it's part of a strategic behavior. So it's not something that just sort of happens. And in the U.S., whose job is it to investigate those attacks when they happen or to maybe do work to to prevent them from happening? So in the United States... You know, this is sort of a common theme, of course, with public policy and law enforcement in the United States. You have a pretty complicated federal and state and local network that could potentially and does play a role in investigating terrorism, domestic terrorism, and in foiling it and in prosecuting it, right? So in the United States, you oftentimes hear from counterterrorism officials that the premier federal level agency that investigates and addresses terrorism is the FBI. That's kind of the most. But I would say that that doesn't mean the majority of terrorist domestic threats are actively being investigated by the FBI or in the jurisdiction of the FBI. You have other federal agencies, you have local law enforcement, you have SBI and things like that that will also play a role. And I think that's also, I don't know much about this, but I think that's also true in terms of prosecuting terrorism. It's domestic terrorism. For transnational terrorism, international terrorism, after 9-11, there was the development of sort of like new and strong counterterrorism laws for foreign terrorism, right? And so there's a little bit more, it's also rare, it's more clarity in terms of the jurisdiction than for domestic. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, this kind of gets 
to some of the bigger questions when you think about how this ties into democracy. I mean, when we think about the U.S., there are certain rights that we all have as U.S. citizens. And we often, I think, as, as part of this here, people say things like, well, you know, we can't you know, we shouldn't, we, I don't know if it's, we can't, or we shouldn't surveil our own citizens, or there are certain things that we just can't do within two or, or four citizens of the U.S. versus people who are not citizens. Can you just talk about some of those dynamics and what actions are different for uh, U.S. citizens versus non-citizens? So sometimes some democracies are actually quite good at, at actually rooting out terrorist conspiracies and reducing terrorism because of that trust, right? But that said, I mean, you're right that, you know, a lot of the very crucial freedoms we have in a democracy, the freedom of association, freedom of movement, some would say the right to be able to bear arms. And of course, not all democracies interpret things that way. But in the United States, many people think that that's a democratic right. The rights of the accused, all these things are absolutely crucial components of being in a democracy, but they provide advantages to clandestine groups that want to avoid being detected. I guess that was an answer to a question you kind of weren't getting at. I guess I think what you were asking about, though, was about treatment of like non-U.S. citizens or of foreign terrorists in the United States by law enforcement. Of course, that's a big story in history with that as well. Right. And, you know, the example I like to use after 9-11, of course, the United States prosecutes a war in Afghanistan and opens up Guantanamo Bay and Camp X-Ray. Right. And Guantanamo Bay of course, is used as a detention center and an interrogation center for enemy combatants. These are non-U.S. citizens. These are foreign nationals that have been allegedly captured on the battlefield, and they're kind of held in this legal black hole, right, where they're not have access to an attorney, uh, the media doesn't have access to them, and so on and so forth. That's kind of where my mind went when you said the different treatment of a non-U.S. citizen or a foreign national versus a U.S. citizen. For a U.S. citizen, of course, they have the full access to the legal system to protect their rights and to appeal and so on and so forth. They certainly have a political advantage in the sense that they're maybe potentially able to generate more sympathy and, and therefore have people read more nuance into their case. Another advantage is in the legal structure where we do, again, have these fairly well-defined and highly punitive capital case law, I'm not using the term properly, capital offense laws at the federal level to prosecute foreign terrorists, which we don't have at the domestic level. I think there's kind of a popular assumption, it's not quite right, that you know the U.S. does not have a domestic terrorism law. I mean, that's, that's true, but we have a lot of other legal tools that we can use to go after domestic terrorists. But there certainly isn't that unified, easy-to-use federal criminal code. It's not defined in the federal criminal code, right, for domestic terrorism. It is for foreign terrorism. And that, I would imagine that would be another advantage to being a U.S. national committing a domestic attack, right, in that there's a jurisdictional issue and there's an issue about how you're going to be prosecuted. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, you would need to try them using different types of criminal law. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the yeah. other thing that comes up a lot and has come up particularly since the insurrection is the connection between right-wing extremism and domestic terrorism. I think there's a lot of confusion there about like whether people like the folks that we saw at the Capitol and and other kind of right-wing groups that are congregating online and other places, like are they or could they be considered domestic terrorists or it's, it's just kind of a thorny issue. And I think as you were saying before, lots of kind of misperceptions out there as well. Yeah, it's a very thorny issue. 
And I mean, when I kind of think, so we, we actually talked, I, I, I teach an undergraduate course on the politics of terrorism. I opened up the semester this semester. I said, look, there's no way we can't, we can avoid talking about January 6th. And if that was a, could that be considered to be a domestic terrorist attack? And, and what do we know about what causes terrorism? Can we use any of those that accumulated knowledge to understand like maybe why that happened and what's you know what can we do to quell that kind of behavior in the future and that kind of stuff and so the class and I we talked about it a lot we kind of agreed that the January 6th event is a complex event right and what I mean by that is um, you have multiple types of actors multiple types of people that go and participate and they participate in different ways in January 6th so there's some people of course that went to the rally out of curiosity went to the rally because the Trump supporters were engaged in the rally and maybe went home right or maybe walked down to the Capitol building and didn't enter or maybe did enter the Capitol building. there was no plan for them to do that they were carried away by the crowd I think actually some of the defendants have said that haven't they I was carried away by the moment right this doesn't really very well fit our definition of terrorism because it's spontaneous it's not part of a premeditated strategic behavior on this part. But that said, there were actors and people who did participate in a way that was more premeditated. You had like the Oath Keepers, you had all these right-wing extremist groups that went to the rally, had been talking online about a planned attack and engaged in a planned attack. And I think they definitely had a political message that was intended to be absorbed beyond. I mean, I think part of the part of the goal was to disrupt the constitutional process of certifying the Electoral College vote. I think part of it was that, but part of it was to send a message, a wider message about politics and grievance and who's in control and who should be in control and things like that. So it's a complex event. It's just, I don't think you can take it and say, there's only one type of actor. There was only one type of motivation. There was only one type of behavior, right? It's like, I kind of think of it in that in that way. And so can you talk a little bit about how all this has sort of become politicized in the U.S. and the Trump administration? And, and you know, perhaps it, it goes back farther than that. But I know that uh, one of the things Michael and Candace, again, were talking about on our post-insurrection episode was this notion that Congress tried to take action to do something to more directly classify right-wing extremists as domestic terrorists, but that was foiled for political reasons. I think there was also a report from Homeland Security recently that was kind of suppressed from coming out. So how has this uh, politicization of things evolved over time, and, and what are the implications of that? So the way I think about it is this, is that after 9-11 happened, there was a complete reorientation of security policy in the United States. It was the construction of the Department of Homeland Security, which was the, I think was the most massive federal government reorganization of the time or something like that. That's huge, right? And there was a reprioritization of what threats meant. And the threats after 9-11 were foreign terrorist threats. They were foreign terrorist threats launched by transnational Islamist organizations, right? That's kind of really what the focus wasn't that. I don't know that that's good policy, but it's not surprising that that would be the case, right? You had this very, I mean, kind of unprecedented in terms of its scope, suicide attack against the United States, right? And people like to say, you know, jokingly, like 9-11 changed everything. And that's what Bush used to say all the time. But it kind of really did in terms of counterterrorism and it did in terms of conceptualization of international, of like U.S. international security policy, right? And so, 99.999% of all the resources and the attention and the effort from like 9-11 all the way through the next decade, whatever, was on international terrorism, 
right? But during that time period, you did have domestic terrorism. You had both right-wing violent extremist terrorist groups that committed attacks, right? You had non-right-wing groups. You had a huge blossoming in the 2000s of environmental and eco-terrorism in the West Coast, right? But politics played a role as well. I think I seem to remember that during the Obama administration, the DHS basically commissioned a study on violent right-wing extremism and actors. And it produced this report that was only intended for DHS people to read. It was, it was supposed to be an internal report, but it got leaked to the press and it caused this massive firestorm with this report. I, mean, I actually used to sign it for one of my classes so we would read it, even though it was not supposed to be leaked, you know. But this report, and there's a lot, there's a lot to pick apart with the report. There's a lot of kind of bad analysis in it. But basically, there were these sort of touch points that were mentioned in the report that made like Republican politicians the Republican, the right-wing media environment just go nuts. And I think remember the report saying, we need to anticipate that there will be an increase in terms of right-wing terrorism. And a couple of things are driving this. You have the election of the first African-American president that is going to inflame racial passions among white supremacists, and that they could lash out. I mean, that's, that's clearly a reasonable assumption to make. That there was increased salience of the Second Amendment and gun issues, right? And that's something that is, of course, a cause celeb among mainstream politicians, but also among the far right, the violent far right, right? Right. So from where you sit, are there things that Congress or the courts or the executive, things that, you know, the government outside of the FBI and, and these agencies could be doing or, or perhaps should be doing to more more directly address right wing extremism and, and domestic terrorism? So within the FBI, I know you're talking about outside the FBI, but I was very heartened by the fact that in the past couple of months, the FBI has indicated, I mean, this is a real big change. They've indicated that, I think they made a statement um, that uh, they, they think of violent right-wing extremism as like the primary political violence threat in the United States. That, that's really, I've never heard them say that before. That's a really good sign. And I think that there, I hope that there is a real honest refocusing on what the real threats are in the United States. And, and that's one of them. It's not the only one, that's one of them. And for so long, it was not looked at. And so I hope that that's a good sign. It's really hard to know what the political system can do because of extreme polarization. So, Jim, the other kind of dynamic at play here that we haven't talked about really is how race figures into all of this. I, I mean, we sort of talked a little bit about on the, the kind of international side, but I think looking at domestic terrorism in the U.S., there's, uh, I think, sometimes uh, a, a tendency to try to equate things like we saw with the Capitol insurrection with Black Lives Matter, for example. And, you know, I, I'm wondering what should or or how should we think about the role that race plays here in in terms of who is committing domestic terrorism and how people think about it yeah i think that that's come up jenna hasn't it in a related type of discussion about like police suppression of black lives matter protests uh, or protests over the summer over police brutality versus the Capitol Police and how they reacted to the insurrection on January 6th. Now, I mean, again, there's a lot of moving parts there, one of which is that um, I don't know that we know exactly whether the Capitol Police were just like told to stand down or just were not prepared or, I mean, there could be a lot of sort of reasons for that. But I, I think that that's, a, that that's an important discussion to have in terms of that. There's no question in my mind, there's no question at all that when Americans think about terrorism, they're not thinking about the people that stormed the Capitol. There's no, that, it's just very, very clear on that. 
right? They have in their mind sort of a certain type of threatening perpetrator. And this is something that we see in studies of crime and all that kind of stuff. There's a, in your mind a certain perpetrator and racial components to that are very, very crucial to building that mind of who is dangerous, who needs to have force used against them, who doesn't, you know, and who needs understanding. Or it's about economic grievances as opposed to, no, these people, we need to get tough on crime and are, are tough on this. I did a, an experimental study. This is a couple of years ago. It was, it was interesting. To, it, was, it was depressing to do, but it's interesting to do where basically, I don't want to get into the design of the study or anything like that, but but basically I took subjects and I had them read what turns out turned to be a fictitious news clipping about an arrest of two terrorism suspects. And what I manipulated in the study was the religious slash ethnic identity of the suspects and also who they were affiliated with in terms of a group. Then I asked a bunch of questions of the subjects of the study and said, like, you know, what type of counterterrorism efforts should be, should be used against these type of perpetrators? And it turns out having a stereotypically Muslim name or being told that you're associated with a foreign Muslim group the subjects were much, much more punitive. They were much, much more willing to say, no, we need tough counterterrorism treatment of these people, right? When I gave the suspects a stereotypical Anglo name or said they were associated with a right-wing domestic group, right, the responses ranged from neutral to, no, we need to really protect these people's rights. It's really important. They should not be subjected to uh, trial without a lawyer or not have a lawyer present. All these things that happened under 9-11 where the rights of people accused at least of transnational terrorism were kind of abridged, were taken away, right? Uh, we can't subject, we sh they, they shouldn't go to Guantanamo Bay. So it's pretty clear that just in the general public, there is a conception of who's who's a threat, who's not a threat, and there's a racial identity component to that. There's no question about it. And I don't, I don't think that I think that that's a good way to try to understand. I think that's a real barrier to identifying domestic right wing terrorism, which is more likely to be perpetrated by whites, right, by white males, and recognizes it as a threat and prosecuting it, right. I think that's certainly an issue there. I think race certainly plays plays a role. So you and your colleagues in the, the terrorism studies field have lots of information about how people become radicalized and maybe de-radicalized, if that's the the right term from the, the kind of international terrorism realm? I mean, what lessons do you think we might apply from that as it comes to thinking about what this growing domestic terrorism threat? So I have like two types of responses to that. And the final response is not to be very satisfying, but it, it's the one I, I, I believe in the most. Okay. And that is in the field of terrorism studies, there's actually quite a bit of research and quite a bit of work on the radicalization process, counter-radicalization and de-radicalization. Radicalization process is this idea, how does somebody who wouldn't consider using terrorism come to a state of mind where they think it's justified, right? They become radicalized. The counter-radicalization process would be, how do we combat the radicalization process? How do we take people who are in the process of or who have not yet been radicalized and put barriers and off-ramps to that process, right? And then the de-radicalization process is we got somebody who's maybe committed an act, right? Or they're a member of a group. How do we get them out of that? How do we change their mind? How do we undo the damage of radicalization they've been through and try to get them to change their life and to become peaceful? Some countries have invested a lot of money in this. So Saudi Arabia, for example, in the 90s and the 2000s, put a lot of resources into de-radicalization programs. And they had, I would say, very mixed success. I mean, it's really, really hard 
to counter-program radicalization, and it's very hard to de-radicalize people. And I think there's a reason for that. This is the second part. That is, I think we don't really understand what radicalization is. I think it's a process. If someone goes online, comes across QAnon conspiracy stuff, comes across radical Islamic stuff, right? And something happens, we can't really see what it is, that's called radicalization, and then they come out and they've changed, right? And they're more willing now to use violence, and and they're not willing, they're anti-status quo, and they're not willing to work within the system, and, and, and that kind of stuff. And they're cut off to other types of communication and information. And I, I just think we use a term that we have not really unpacked and understand. And I think it's a tremendously complex thing. The internet and radicalization is a big topic, right? I and mean, that's something that we've talked, it's been very interesting. But there's actually kind of two schools of thought about what the internet does in terms of radicalization. On the one hand, it provides a forum in which like-minded people can get together and they, it's an echo chamber, they reinforce their beliefs and their prejudices and their bad information and their conspiracy theories. You can recruit people online if you're a nefarious actor. You can share how to do an attack. I mean, you know, this is what you need to do to evade the police. All this kind of stuff is really, really real. But there's an interesting, there's actually a counter argument to that with evidence behind it, that the internet can be very demobilizing for people, right? For one, number one, it's also traceable, right? I mean, the government agents, government agencies can, 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 can play a role in monitoring that. I don't know if you know this, but there are Muslim organizations. These are non-governmental organizations that go to these jihadi chat rooms and they monitor people, and they also sometimes try to intervene and talk them out of stuff, right? That's just kind of what they do, right? So that going online exposes you to that potential counter-radicalization, counter-terrorism stuff. It's also one of those things that there's this sort of this armchair warrior phenomenon there, where or key, keyboard warrior, rather, where you, you log on, you get all worked up, but that's how you're fighting, right? You're, you're, by, by, by posting, by sharing stuff, by posting stuff, all that kind of stuff, it keeps you from doing something violent. It can be a very demobilizing, I and mean, I think we all know this, you can spend a lot of time on the internet doing nothing, right? I mean, it's just, it's a place where you, you it kind of corrals, it creates like a sanctuary and a corral for would-be radicals. And so, so in addition to not understanding what radicalization is fully, because I think it's complex, I don't think we understand exactly in the final analysis what the internet does in terms of radicalization. I, I told you it was going to be kind of deflating, you know, I don't, there's not an answer there, but, yeah. but I, I think we just, I don't think we understand that very well at all. Jim, this has been really great. I've learned a lot and uh, I hope our listeners have too. So thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I, I had a good time. As always, I'd like to thank Jenna for her excellent interview and Jim for joining us. I learned a great deal about domestic terrorism, just even having a good definition, but also it's linked to democracy. One of the things that stood out to me is, I think Jenna asked about, you know, like what's the relationship between democracies and non-democracies and terrorism? And what stood out to me was his response that in a democracy, at least when you have a situation where people trust each other, there's social trust, there's good community, that you can prevent terrorism, that democracy is good for rooting out terrorists and good for rooting out conspiracy theories because people are willing to report and they're willing to trust. For me, that stood out because if we're seeing that domestic terrorism is a growing threat, then what does that say about our democracy and the components that sustain democracy? Yeah, maybe declining trust. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> it also, yes. I, yeah. right. It also reminded me of, of Ann Applebaum's contribution to the podcast when, you know, she says, when you don't trust your neighbor and social ties become more strained, democracy is more vulnerable. And from what I'm getting from what Jim is in his research talks about is that democracies become more vulnerable to domestic terrorism as well when when those ties become strained. Yeah, so I it was good to hear from Jim. I, I miss talking to Jim in the halls about terrorism. He's my go-to guy for understanding terrorism both here and abroad. The point about democracy helping to reduce it is is a really interesting one, so long as there really is that kind of trust in those ties in society. We know that those have been been kind of eroding. There are also challenges within a democracy mm-hmm. for terrorism, and not only the effects that terrorism can have on a democracy, which I think maybe we should talk about, but also that you know we have certain kinds of civil liberties protections that make it very difficult to monitor and surveil potential domestic terrorists, domestic terrorists, people that might be thinking of becoming terrorists, the uh, chatter that you might hear on social media suggesting that something is coming is you know, not as available to uh, investigative agencies as it is when it's uh, being collected by the NSA or the CIA overseas. I mean, there are just, there are protections that we expect. Uh, it's also in the hands here of the FBI, as opposed to, you know, the counterterrorism operations that go on elsewhere. The FBI is about crime. And so everything it has to do, you know, has to be consistent with constitutional protection. What I meant to say is the FBI is about solving crimes. And so everything it does has to be consistent with protections for suspects. So it's hard. It's, it's harder. I guess I just am pointing out all of the nuances that have been flattened about a lot of issues, immigration, security, terrorism, who's likely to be a terrorist, where we should pay attention, international terrorism, transnational terrorism, domestic terrorism. We've, I don't want to say um, the American public has been, maybe the word I want to use is we've been miseducated. And now we're kind of we're eating, we're eating that lack of knowledge around the really important nuances of domestic terrorism best cited by January 6th. Yeah. Well, and I'm not encouraged that we're going to have the kind of healthy uh, after action analysis of what happened that will allow us to make uh, better decisions going forward about how how we might be able to address some of these. I, w- I would like to return to some of the democracy issues because yes. uh, because where democracy works. And so we, we always like to come <laughs> back to democracy issues. But I mean, so there, there are issues within a democracy in terms of why terrorism might be less likely, about challenges in identifying uh, potential terrorism and responding to it. But there's also, you know, what do you think the effects are going to be for us of this sort of clear uptick in political violence? Well, for me, the effects are worth thinking through. But I think it sounds to me, you know, I'm new to this area, but it sounds to me that it's also that domestic terrorism is a symptom of a larger set of problems. Mm. And one of the problems that I think that we're seeing is part of the uptick is that people feel okay 
to come out of the shadows and get off of the internet and come together in groups at Charlottesville, in D.C., in Michigan. And you have political leaders who are openly kind of endorsing or at least not condemning this kind of violence. And so on on some ways, I think what we're seeing is that people feel like they have a bigger say and they have political leaders who would support these efforts when we haven't seen that in the recent past. Candace, as we're as we're wrapping up, I'm I'm thinking about what a large role the FBI is going to play now in helping Americans understand what went on and of course in protecting us going forward. And of course, the FBI has been under attack for four years uh, during the Trump administration. And within the uh, McCourtney Institute, we did some polling on the FBI a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. found just a huge decline in trust among uh, Republicans in particular in the FBI. You know, where usually you would have thought of Republicans as the ones most likely to be supportive of the FBI because basically mm-hmm. they're older conservative white guys, it's actually now Democrats that have more trust and confidence in the FBI than than do Republicans. And this sort of pardonization of the institution, and we've talked about this a lot on this show, that the constant pardonization of all institutions has its consequences. And, you know, and one of them is that now they're seen through a partisan lens. And so whatever they may be telling us is going to be, by many anyway, absorbed and understood through a partisan lens. And that's that's not going to help in coming together on this problem. Yeah. I mean, we have seen over the years a decimation and decline of bureaucracies and our val- you know, collective value of expertise, which is even though bureaucrats do red tape and all of this, they also have a lot of expertise. And the attack on expertise and the attack of the bureaucracy is producing mm-hmm. an, a very volatile situation. Yep. I hate to end on a down note, but, and we don't have to. I want to thank Jim Piazza for joining us. It was great to have him in our Zencaster studio. And always thank you to Jenna for an excellent interview. I learned a great deal from Jim. And I hope that this conversation puts our listeners and ourselves into kind of being more sensitive to the nuances of what is a a really important matter for our democracy moving forward. And I'll say thanks to our listeners. I'm Candace Watts-Smith for Democracy Works. Thanks for listening. I'm Michael Berkman. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.